Hello, I'm Kim Katola, host of Cradle My Heart Radio. Our mission is preventing abortion and helping those it hurts. And our vision is to bring abortion recovery to the church, reaching out to equip and encourage pastors, elders, ministry leaders, and others so they can minister God's love to the millions of Christians personally impacted by this moral crisis of our time. Saving lives and healing hearts, this is Cradle My Heart Radio. Find us online at cradlemyheart.org. Where can you find God's voice in the noise on reproductive choice? For over a million women and men each year, the question goes beyond politics to become much more pressing and personal, both before and after the choice. And we are called to love the little children just as God does. Listen to Cradle My Heart Radio with your host, Kim Katola, speaker, writer, and broadcaster, sharing God's truth to prevent abortion and help those it hurts. Learn more at cradlemyheart.org. Thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate you joining us for Cradle My Heart Radio and to hopefully learn a little something about what you can do about joining in to this incredible battle that's happening in the background of our lives uh, and I'm talking about abortion, of course. And for me, one of the one of the things about this battle is that on the other side of it, we still have the understanding that new life is beautiful and it's incredible and it's an a miracle. It's a miracle. It's something to be completely celebrated. I think about um, this this joke that I heard about a woman who went <laughs> for her. Um, to see her OBGYN for a four-month checkup. She was four months pregnant. And after the doctor had completed the ultrasound, of course, you know, those feelings of awe and wonder and love. Oh, the baby's toes. I can see the baby's rib cage right now. So the woman says to her doctor, oh, four months. Doctor, when will the baby move? And the doctor said, with any luck, right after college. <laughs> Which <laughs> for those of us who have already launched our grown children. Uh, maybe he was in that phase when he answered her that way. <laughs> Doctors can get a little bit jaded, right? I remember this actually happened to me. Uh, I went to see Dr. Beavis when my, my son Sam was born, and Dr. Beavis was already in his 80s, and he'd seen and heard a lot. He was really unflappable. I had called once when some horrible thing had happened, and he just remained completely calm. Anyway, it was my one of the first visits that I had as a brand-new mom with my brand-new baby, and I brought him in, and Dr. Beavis said, you know, this is you really have a beautiful baby here. And I said, oh, Dr. Beavis, I bet you say that to all the new moms. And he said, no, I really don't. And I said, well, what do you say to the to the moms of the babies who are less attractive? And he said, I always tell him he looks just like you. And <laughs> it's kind of an all purpose, <laughs> kind of an all purpose praise. Oh, you know, and I think about this and. If you're listening to this broadcast, my guess is that you are pro-life, that you are against abortion. And aren't you glad that we're on the right side of this issue in the lives of our little ones? Remarkable times, allowing us to see what only God has seen before this generation, life in the womb. Oh, but picture this. If America's abortion machine were operating 24-7, in the three minutes it took 
for me to share those two stories, the lives of at least three children would have been wiped out. That means you and I, we are either going to be helping or hindering one of the greatest rescue operations of all time, not just of our time, but of all time. And my challenge is to help you determine what can you do to increase your hero quotient in the face of America's war on children. As much as we may dislike or deny it, this war has already claimed millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of casualties. And as reluctant as you may be to engage the battle, I want you to recall the words of G.K. Chesterton, who said, War is not the best way to settle differences, but it is the only way to prevent their being settled for you. We may have lost the battle against legalizing abortion in individual states which still allow it. But we can be brave in spending ourselves in this great work. As one of my mentors and as a former guest on this program has put it, what we're doing is saving innocent lives one woman at a time. And we must understand the cost of remaining silent on the sidelines and shrinking back from this fight. Especially now, in the wake of the news that The pharmacy that you go to for life-saving medicines, CVS, Walgreens, they have decided that they will dispense abortion pills. Sometimes women are finding these pills online or by other methods, but have you let the pharmacy know? Have you written a letter? Have you spoken out? Have you said this is not right? Did you know that you do have a hero quotient. Each of us does, and you can increase it. All right? So we'll start with what makes a hero. Wall Street Journal reported in 2012 some of the key character traits identified by researchers as to what composes or comprises the hero quotient. And these include bravery, of course. Uh, fear does not keep a hero from pursuing goals or doing what's right. Uh, heroes have empathy. They care. others, especially those less fortunate, especially those less able to defend themselves. Uh, Heroes are hopeful. They believe in the good, and they seek to bring it out in themselves and others. And they also strive to be competent, knowing that they can always improve. And heroes have coping ability, so they refuse to stop in the face of failure, and they succeed despite many setbacks. You know, they view their failures as golden lessons and things to, you know, what is the saying? Only new mistakes, right? (laughs) And recently, researchers at Columbia University found several similar key factors that separated rescuers from bystanders during the Holocaust in Europe in World War II. So the rescuers showed significantly higher levels of social responsibility. They really understood that we all have a civic duty. We all have a duty to the communities that we belong to. The rescuers had, again, like the heroes, a great deal of empathy. The rescuers somehow were willing to take risks. And the rescue, uh, the rescuers in World War II were also very compassionate in the face of human suffering. They felt they couldn't let it go without them trying to rescue. So these traits were much more strongly associated with rescuing than were any situational factors, right? So you might think in the case of such extreme circumstances as the slaughter of the Jewish people in World War II that 
people's previous experiences with Jews would make them likely to rescue, or maybe having witnessed, personally witnessed, Nazi brutality. Uh, Maybe someone had directly appealed to them for help. Or demographic factors, maybe old people who had more wisdom were more likely to be rescuing, or maybe the young who were more likely to take a risk overall, or their religion. No, these situational factors were not really related to whether or not someone would get engaged in rescuing. And it turns out that social psychologists find few people will ever actually do anything that's truly evil, and fewer still will actually do anything heroic. Most of us in the middle do nothing. Uh, They're known as uh, reluctant heroes, those who refuse the call to action and by doing nothing often implicitly support the perpetrators of evil. Reluctant, almost heroes, I guess we might say. So the the battle, the war, our epic battle today is, of course, not a world war, but the war on the next generation, which is legal abortion. And it is the preeminent moral crisis of our time. And if we are even reluctant to become heroes in this battle, we must be moved to activate some intrinsic quality, something in your heart, your empathy, something that makes you willing to take a risk, some social responsibility that you sense on a deep level so we can take action with compassion toward those innocent victims targeted for destruction simply because they exist. And yes, because they're unloved. You see, in a pro-choice world, you and I are the choice. And your character really counts. You are the margin of victory bringing light to our cultural darkness of abortion through your compassion in action. And you know, I'm not going to sit here and preach to you that I am some sort of a hero. My own story demonstrates Though, how you can go from being a coward to a reluctant hero to someone fully committed to rescue those being led away to death. You know, and I thought I was all in at one point in my pro-life journey. I had finally come to terms with my abortion, which had taken place when I was launching my dream job, my radio career at age 23, a century ago. (laughs) My choice at that time, when I learned I was pregnant, was to get married and raise our child. But he had other plans, and I just couldn't go it alone. And I did not reflect on the morality of it. And I think it's important for you as a pastor or a church leader to know this. I think it's still true. Most young adults or teenagers who are confronted with a problem pregnancy are not thinking about the morality. They are thinking about their future and how this pregnancy threatens their plans. You know, God intervened, as I've shared before, at the last minute to give me the opportunity to get up off that table, but I didn't listen. I didn't know his voice well enough to trust him, and I didn't have the character to follow through and do the right thing. So I had, in the immediate aftermath of abortion, the double disgrace of participating in that killing and cowardice. And, you know, here's the thing. Killing and cowardice became the secret of my success. Because I was protecting my fledgling radio career. And I am not condemning anyone who has had an abortion. As Jesus said 
In John 3:17, I came into the world not to condemn, but to save the world from sin. I have to follow his pattern and show you the way out of the sin of abortion and not condemn anyone while I'm at it. But I want you to know the aftermath of 20 year, 23 years left me trapped in that private hell of guilt and grief and fear of others discovering my secret shame. Now, I did find healing as I was given the gift of repentance for my deadly cowardice and passivity, and I was able to grieve my lost child and began building the support I had always needed with the help of a Christian retreat, a post-abortion Bible study, hearing good sermons week out, week in and week out, that is. I mean, many, many planted Many, many watered, and God gave the increase in my healing. Uh, And, you know, opportunities to be in the spotlight had come often in my 25 years in broadcasting when I was walking out that healing. I was known as Kim Jeffries on KS95 and WCCO Radio and TV in Minneapolis and St. Paul. But the blessing on a particular night when I was on my way to a gig of a new powder blue suit made me that night, uh, made this night seem extra special to me, as if God were saying, you can feel good about this. I'm redeeming the career you once chose over your child by allowing you to give witness about the love of Jesus Christ in your community. I'd I'd gotten invitations to speak for pregnancy resource centers and at churches and to share the truth of abortion's devastation and God's redemption. This particular event was not a Christian event. It was a, a, a secular event, and I was only asked to moderate questions. It was a women's business networking event. Uh, but I drove to the event feeling encouraged and equipped, ready to shine where God was planning me. And I flipped on the radio as I was driving that night, and I listened to a story about a country where Christianity is forbidden by law. And I was mesmerized. The radio host told about a family dragged outside their home. Um, And he said, you know, Americans are so rich in our material blessings, but also the freedom to openly practice our faith, that we should never pervert the message of being rich in Christ in light of the fact that people are still being martyred for proclaiming the gospel today. Because what happened with this family, the man was a pastor, and his wife and children were dragged out of the house with him. And the soldiers placed a gun to the temple of his 10-year-old child, his son, and they said to the pastor, unless you renounce Jesus, we will kill your son. And before he could answer, his son said, I will never renounce Jesus. And they shot him right in front of his father's eyes. And then they shot the rest of his family and left him standing before they dragged him to prison. And of course, people having heard the story of how God healed him and moved him beyond that tragedy were coming to faith in huge numbers. And I turned off the radio feeling humbled and even more grateful to God for my new spiritual freedom in Christ. And I thought how moments earlier I'd given God credit for giving me a new suit. But I wondered, how would I react if I was forced to put my faith on the line to save my family? It's such a riveting story, isn't it? And such a question for all of us. And that night, I was surprised because for the first time in my life, I actually felt confident that I could stand up for my faith. This newfound willingness in my heart to give my life for my faith was a significant step forward. 
Maybe God was exchanging a new courage for the cowardice that I had demonstrated on the day of that abortion. And so I arrived at the event, and as we were being seated, I heard, we were mingling, we were, you know, talking. I heard, watch screen six. And um, during, you know, these organizations will be benefiting from the table offering tonight. And uh, it, it was a slideshow about different charity, or not charity, but just different community organizations. And so, you know, during the years that I'd been languishing in my denial, those 23 years I mentioned, I had lost most of my memory of the place where the abortion had taken place. I could remember the general location. Sometimes I thought I'd drive by to try to retrieve the name. But now, here it was, right in front of me. The name of that facility splashed across a screen, and I was riveted. The room around me literally seemed to fade and my eyes fixed on the next slide where a woman in a white lab coat and a young woman sat smiling at each other across a desk. And a wave of nausea swept over me as I conjured the full ugliness of the transaction behind that pretty picture because I knew what took place behind those doors. And the next thing I heard was, and now please welcome Kim Jeffries, our moderator. And I knew that I had to now get up and walk to the front of that room fully aware that my participation in this event would benefit and advance my mortal enemy, the facility and the staff who had helped to end my child's life. My work this night would put money in their hands. My work would further their cause. Yet somehow, by simple reflex at the sound of my professional name, I stood and I went forward and I failed to utter a word against that place of death and destruction in my life. The event seemed to last forever. I held myself together by smiling and falling into a professional geniality, and my hollow pledge of courage from a few scant hours earlier mocked me with growing intensity as the evening wore on. All I could think of was how eager I was for the moment when I could escape to the safety of my car. And when at last I did, I went outside and wept bitterly, praying for Jesus to help me avoid ever disowning him like that again. Here I had pledged to tell of his love, and instead I participated in a fundraiser to further abortion, death, and lies. How could Jesus ever place his trust in me again? Of course, you know, failures are God's teachable moments. I overestimated my spiritual capacity, and I underestimated my weak flesh. I disowned Jesus with my stunned silence. I really believe I was being sifted as wheat. You know, for all I know, though, a child's life may have been on the line that night. There may have been someone in that room thinking about abortion, someone who saw the smiling people in the slides and thought abortion was a good option, someone who could have been spared from me making, uh, from them making a daily choice. Uh, what could I have done? I could have said, oh, I see, this organization will benefit. I pray you choose life. I could have spoken God's word, which he says will not return to him void, without giving offense or being provocative. I, I, I've turned it over in my mind so many times in the years that have followed. And I pray that if I'm ever sifted as wheat again, that I will call on the Holy Spirit to give me the courage I lack. But I also 
cling to the idea that when Jesus told Peter on the night of his betrayal, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed. And when your faith has failed, that you will turn back and strengthen the brothers. And that's why I'm here doing what I do today. You know, to think that our silence doesn't affect others is to fool ourselves. Because here's what's at stake. Children are dying from abortion every day due to silence and neglect, as I said, minute by minute. According to the Minnesota Department of Health, this was a snapshot from 1973 to 2015, 618,814 children, for example, were killed in elective abortions in Minnesota alone. And in 2015, the, uh, the, the number was 9,861. The precision of these numbers is a chilling reminder that abortion is not just public policy, not just a law, not just a debate, not just a gridlocked idea that causes us fatigue when we even hear the word. No, abortion carries a body count. And I want you to realize that if we were to give a proper burial to Minnesota's abortion war on children, victims, we would have to build three Fort Snelling cemeteries. It's one of our national cemeteries for our brave uh, military. Right now, 220,000 grave sites. But of course, for the over 600,000, we would need less land for the tiny caskets. As you think about the casualties of the war and the casual way we treat their remains as medical waste, ponder this, as one priest has said, if we were to give just a moment of silence to each victim of our war on children who has died due to abortion, just a moment of silence for each life, it would take over 100 years to honor them all moment by moment. So, today I stand before you, as I said, I've been given my second chance. And I know for some of you, the prospect of a second chance is something you desperately need, too. And if you're convicted that your silence has been deadly, uh, all these years after my powder blue defeat, it's been over 10 years now. But after about six years after that, God provided a chance for me to be brave in the face of fear and to act on the love in my heart toward my sister who needed a kidney transplant. (laughs) Donating a kidney was an act of hope, rooted in love and bolstered by my trust in God. We can never pay in any way for another human life. But just as Jesus went to the home of Zacchaeus and helped him change his life from being a tax collector, to giving his wealth. God changed me from being one who participated in taking a human life to one who gave a gift of life. Revelations 12 says, The accuser of the brethren stands before the throne of God, accusing them all day long, but they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives unto death. Jesus Christ has redeemed my sin and changed me from a coward who allowed others to take the life of my own child to one who cared enough to give the gift of life. 
And he's also fully restored my broken spirit by giving me the hope of heaven and a blessed reunion with the child of my heart and more. My husband Bruce and I are having the time of our lives as grandparents to nine little ones age eight and under. We went to see all of them in the recent holidays in four different northern states. (laughs) And it's good to be back in the desert. God is so good. I know this. No matter how much each of us may give, we can never outgive God. As part of giving honor and dignity to the memory of my child in heaven, I've armed myself to effectively wage truth, and I pray never to be caught flat-footed again. And I'm active in training uh, Christian high school and college students to make the one-minute case for life. And we're going to close with that just so you have a chance to hear it and perhaps go to our website and learn more about how you can do this work as well. Here it is in one minute. The science of embryology teaches us that from the earliest stages of development, the unborn are distinct, living, and whole human beings. Philosophically, there is no morally significant difference between the embryo that you once were and the adult that you are today. Differences of size, level of development, environment, degree of dependency are not morally significant reasons to say you could be killed then as an embryo, but not today. Although humans differ immensely, they are not, they are nonetheless equally valuable at every stage because we all share a common human nature. Please, I hope that something that I've said has impressed upon you the seriousness of this battle and encouraged you uh, and equipped you in some way to take up your place in the battle. Please visit our website at cradlemyheart.org. So many great minds have contributed to programs in our archives. So many great pastors, ministry leaders, and others have uh, spoken words that will encourage you and equip you further. Please do visit us online at cradlemyheart.org. Thanks for being with us today. Please join us next time. This is Cradle My Heart Radio with Kim Katola, preventing abortion and helping those it hurts. Please get in touch with Kim. Find out more at cradlemyheart.org. You can listen to the podcast on all platforms.